Ow now, brown cow. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week we are just days away from football. The 49ers training camp begins on Saturday, and with me this week to defuse the tiny explosive devices implanted in Jimmy Garoppolo's circulatory system, it's David Newman. Jimmy, I care about you so much. Oh, man. You're right there beneath my family and a few select friends, not even all my friends. Uh, just a, just a couple of them. You're right there and where my concern for your safety is. The dead spin, why your team sucks was one of the best things I read this week. It was so unbelievably good. And I, it pains me actually that some of the Twitter followers did not agree. They called it immature writing. They said it was trash. They just don't get it. You just got to lighten up, man. These things are funny. They're funny. They're fun. It's hilarious. They had a couple of really good lines in there that I think... I mean, we were texting quotes from this article back and forth. For oh, I was I late was to crying. a meeting. I was late to a meeting. <laughs> that was the best part, actually. I was, I'm literally sitting in my office laughing, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, shit, gotta go. <laughs> uh, sorry, guys. I was reading a hilarious article. Uh, where, where are we at here? That's, that's about it. That's Just it. come in. Decisions. Yeah. Hold up. I gotta read an article. And Done. then leave. Yeah. Arrow points up. <laughs> uh so just got back from chicago actually had the best cheeseburger of my entire life i thought you should know that wow it's, it's the highest rated cheeseburger on the oscar cheeseburger rating scale in my spreadsheet officially it gets an 18 out of 20 it only missed out two points on the fries but the meat was great the bun was great meat to bun ratio was awesome fixings were great it's it's it, it just sung in is my this mouth. a is this a gourmet burger there's a fast food burger where is this where is this at on the if it's see you know the rating the category system. so yeah. you know that there is a fast food category you know there is a gourmet category this exists in the fast casual category okay. there's a bar called um Al cheval which means the horse apparently not horse meat though good. it was good it was a perfect exemplary american burger with two patties they had those thin patties like you get at p terry's or, or yeah. But they managed to cook that medium. Yeah. I don't sure. know how. I don't know how. I don't Impressive. know how. But they did it. Uh, sorry. I just, I really wanted to share that with you because cheeseburgers are amazing. Love, love some them. cheeseburgers. Just had a cheeseburger. Yeah. So yeah. let's get, oh, that's right. You had, was it a cheeseburger or was it a veggie burger? Oh, fuck veggie burgers. <laughs> I don't fuck with veggie burgers. Are you kidding me? It's not a burger. Get it oh out of here. Oh my God. All right. Well, with that, let's get to the rundown uh, because we've got, so football's almost here. And that means we've got a lot of news items coming out of the pipe. It's like the embargo has been lifted, release the Kraken, things are coming, training camp is here. Mike Sando, now of The Athletic, which means I can officially read Mike Sando again. I'm super excited about it. He's no longer hidden behind the ESPN Insider paywall. But Mike Sando has his 2019 quarterback ratings. He asked 55 coaches and execs to place quarterbacks in tiers, reserved one for the best, reserved five for the worst. Generally speaking, the better the tier the less help the quarterback needs from his defense and running game to succeed, per Mike Sando. Uh, he takes the average of the rankings, then sorts the QBs into tiers. And of course, we're going to skip all the way to the middle of the article and get to Jimmy Garoppolo, who ends up in tier three. Uh, first reaction, gut reaction. What, how do you feel that in your loins, David? I mean, I, I feel like it makes sense, right? Um, Three is kind of for the spot where basically everybody lands that is like got uncertain. They're they're either the guys who are firmly tier three people like Andy Dalton 
or they're guys that we just like, okay, we don't know what to do with them yet. Yeah, Kirk Cousins is in Tier 3. Yeah, all day, every day, Tier 3. Yeah, other quarterbacks in Tier 3 were the likes of Kirk Cousins, which is basically you know Kyle Shanahan's love child from another marriage, the other family across the, the railroad tracks. Sometimes he looks at longingly. He looks at a picture of him every now and again, maybe. Um, but okay, so Tier 3, what I thought was interesting, though, was that he moved into Tier 3 from being into Tier 2 the year before, and apparently the primary reason why he was knocked down was because of injury, right? So it's one of those, the the definition of a tier three quarterback for the article is that it's a legitimate starter, but he needs a heavier running game and or defense to win. A lower volume passing offense makes his job easier. And this is basically a quote from, or or basically the, the primary reason was he got injured. And so he must thus be in a lower tier. And I think that's the part that I don't get. And luckily, Sando actually brings this up in the article, right? A quarterback coach says, injury does not mean he's worse. His skills are the same. He does need to stay healthy, and those things will show. I mean, it's not really surprising that a large group of NFL coaches and decision makers, like, don't make a ton of sense. Like, let's be real. Yeah, there Um, there was a bit of nonsense in the article. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, like, justification for things that that are just uh, weird and kind of show. I mean, that's really the best part of the article is, uh, I, I really don't care too much about the rankings beyond it does like, it is nice to just kind of get an idea of where NFL people kind of view these guys, totally right? just agree. kind of getting that idea, but it's, it's more about, uh, the quotes that you get and kind of the thought process behind it, the things that, uh, stick out as kind of being important to them and, and kind of just how they decide to go about these rankings. Right. I think some of it is just, uh, some of it's kind of depressing, honestly, like you, you kind of see like how far back some of these guys still are in their thinking and, uh, and and kind of some of the old school ways that they approach this stuff. But, uh, regardless, like, yeah, I think that's the, the best part of the article is just, it's an enlightening view on how people in the league like looks at this stuff. Yeah. I thought one of the interesting bits was that Matt Ryan ended up getting he ends up in tier two, I believe, but he got a couple of tier three votes and I think Matt Ryan is, I think he's one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the NFL, yep. but that there are people who work in the NFL who think he's like just flat out tier three is, is really surprising to me. It just shows how evaluation can span lots of different criteria and that criteria is not always agreed upon. And some of that criteria is not even important. And, and I think Russell Wilson was also someone that got disparaged a little bit because like, oh man, they run too much. It's like, that's, not Russell Wilson's fault. Yeah, he's not calling the plays. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, Wilson, Wilson at least still ended up in tier one, which is good. Like, I think the way that they they group this, like, I would have almost preferred if I was going to, like, go through and make tiers, my tier one would be much smaller. Yeah. Um, like, I feel like most of what they put in tier one was, like, largely what I would have kind of thought makes more sense as, like, a tier one and tier two, right? The first, yeah. they, they kind of lump all of those those guys that are kind of more in the, the top eight. They did make reference to a couple of coaches and personnel people that only had like maybe two people in their top tier. And I think it the most common ones were Brady Mahomes uh, and I think Breeze. And, and Breeze and, Ro- and well, Roger Rogers is number one overall. Still. Yeah. Um, he, he got all tier one votes except for two. So it's like Rogers, Rogers, Brady Breeze, like as an, older as a tier group, one, like makes sense. And I, then um, I think it, it depends too. I, I feel like generally it was actually maybe even a little surprising to me that they put Mahomes in tier one because yeah. I feel like they're generally slower to like, okay, we really want to 
see it longer and and then we're going to give this guys like we we don't want to group in some guy that's played for you know one season and some change with guys like Rodgers Brady Breeze right which is interestingly enough the reason they use to put Jimmy a little bit lower right we haven't seen it maybe he gets injured and so yeah it's you know I think they just like the traits the traits my friend the traits great uh but all right Navarro Bowman retires a 49er he signed a one-day contract apparently he has some of the animosity behind him uh, of course, remember that he requested a trade when he was going to get demoted in terms of playing time because Reuben Foster was, of course, the future. Seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, but he re- eventually, they could not find a trading partner. They released him, and now uh, he gets to retire in red and gold. It's, when, I, when I was reading the retirement article, of course, first thought is, absolutely, he's a 49er. I'm glad he got to retire here. But man, what a, a shortened career. I mean, he, he's, he started his career with, like, what, four All-Pros, right? Or after his rookie year, he had four. He was named to four All-Pro teams. But I think his total time... Three, I think. Three, and then he, had the, and then he was out injury. I don't think he did it after the injury. Right? No, he didn't do it after the injury. Yeah. Um, but I think overall, his career was only, like, seven years long, right? Um, it, it was not long at all, and it just it sucks that it was cut so short and that, you know, both he and Willis, two of one, you know, the better linebackers in NFL history had, you know, just career shortened, uh, their career shortened due to, to injury. It just, it sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a bummer, especially like guys that had that high of a peak, which is always fun. I mean, like, and it's, is obviously was cool for those few years where their, their peaks kind of overlapped and you got to see both of those guys playing at a super high level and, and playing next to each other. And, and obviously a lot of those games during that time in the early Har- Harbaugh years were a lot of fun and they were a big part of that. So uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of great memories from him. Happy to see him retire as a Niner. Like, it's it's always just kind of good to see. Um, obviously, it, like, doesn't change anything, doesn't, like, really mean anything. Like, he's still, even if this didn't happen, right? Like, he's always going to be thought of as a Niner and, and, and all that. But it's, like, good to see him come back and, like, be around the organization again. Like, you hope to see the same thing with, like, Frank Gore when he retires and, and all that. So, yeah, good to see. Yeah. Uh, and then last one is another story about the Niners. You've got uh, Bleacher Report's Tyler Dunn writing about the 49ers and whether or not they can, quote, handle the pressure. It's a pretty sprawling article. Covers a lot of ground. Was not late to any meetings due to this article. <laughs> uh, but overall, I thought it was kind of a fair article, all things considered. Talks about the front office, coaches, individual players. There's a lot of good detail in the article. Uh, but I th- and even though I had some issues with it, I think... It was a pretty fair representation of the team, where they're at, some of the questions around the team, and some of the questions I think maybe that fans ask themselves when they're alone in the dark and they're clutching that picture of Jimmy Garoppolo and wondering why. <laughs> right. I think, uh, like you said, very fair. Um, I, I don't know how you could like look at anything that was written in there and, and be like, oh my God, this is outrageous. Like I think really what it came down to is just, you know, I, I think there was, there was some stuff there that uh, brings up maybe some bad feelings and memories for 49ers fans considering everything that happened during uh the Harbaugh bulky stuff but um beyond that I think you're you're basically looking at like yeah this is a team that uh redid everything rebuilt had two seasons um to kind of put their roster together how they want it uh when you look at some of the decisions that they have made to do that like I think it's certainly fair to question some of them but a lot of them right are unanswered still and it's kind of like we're waiting to see, and, and this is really the year that you should see. And, and if things don't go well and we don't see significant improvement, I think it's absolutely going to be the case that you start hearing 
uh, if if not just rumors, but like having those guys in in uh, Lynch and Shanahan be actually like on the hot seat, right? And and starting to ha- question how long they're going to be around. Well, there's the issue of the former staffer. So that there's a chunk in the article, and and Tyler Dunn starts quoting a former 49ers staffer that says some things about the team that make you think like, huh, I wonder if there's actually friction between coach and scouting staff or something like that. Uh, There are a couple of anecdotes that Tyler Dunn mentions in the story that seem to have been sourced from this former staffer. One is that Foster was in the room watching draft prospect tape with the scouts uh, and quote, that just doesn't fucking happen. uh, And that the current (laughs) scouting staff is being increasingly marginalized because of the power of the coaching staff and, Kyle Shanahan, basically they're alluding to the fact that Kyle Shanahan wields absolute power and that the coaches then wield absolute power, especially when it comes to making decisions about personnel. And while that's probably some of the, the juicier bits of the story, what did we learn from the whole bulky thing, right? Consider the source. There's a former 49er staffer, someone who's been fired or let go or left or whatever, for whatever reason, no longer works with the team. Uh, and maybe they've got an axe to grind. Who knows? Um, but it's one of those things where is there probably a little bit of truth that the coaches have a lot of decision-making ability when it comes to personnel? Sure. Is it necessarily a problem? I think this is where the article, this is why I said the article was fair. At the end, they're like, you know what? Winning fixes everything. And if they win, none of this shit's going to matter. And if they don't, all of a sudden it will. And it's not surprising that like there, people are coming out and saying that Shanahan has a lot of power in this whole dynamic, right? With how things are run. Like, uh, I mean, that's something that we've talked about several times, right? And, you and look the at GM. some of right, like not only that, but uh, you look at some of the players and some of the decisions that they've made uh, in the two off seasons that they've had, and uh, or like the first two off seasons especially, but I guess this one uh, a little bit as well. Um, and it was a lot of stuff that was like, okay, this is kind of questionable, and it really seems like Shanahan basically just identified a single guy and was like, we have to have this guy at all costs, right? That's something that we've talked about uh, a bunch when looking at this roster and their decisions that they've made. So CJ Beathard, Joe not, Williams, yeah. I mean, overpaying for a fullback, you know, you, you've got a long laundry list of players where that's the case. And, and, but I, again, to the article's point, they talk about all the times the Niners have hit on players where they've hit on the, uh, the George Kittles of the world or even the Matt Breedas, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, right. Like the, at the end, that's kind of the thing is like, this is the year nobody really expected them. I think last year there was a lot of hope, you know, and, and then that hope went away as soon as Jimmy Garoppolo's knee snapped. Um, and, and so you kind of give them a pass for that. But now this is the year where they've had plenty of time to like build the roster the way that they want it, get guys in there. Uh, that they feel like, you know, fit what they do and can really help them out. The younger guys that they took, you know, in that first draft, you know, hopefully should be developing enough to be significant parts of this team. Like now is the year that you need to start seeing results. And I think that's completely fair. Like this is how it works, right? That's how it works in the NFL. Um, So it's not like some, oh my God, groundbreaking thing that if they suck this year, like maybe guys are going to get fired. Like, yeah, of course that's how it's going to work. Interesting nuggets from the article. Number one. Kyle Shanahan apparently does not own a copy of Finding the Winning Edge. He had to borrow it from John Lynch, which I find incredibly surprising. Uh, my I think fav- he would have been able to get a copy of that. I'm just yeah, like, yeah. Come on. Uh, probably from his dad, maybe. Uh, go to the Shanahan Library. Check that puppy out. <laughs> no late fees. Uh, my favorite line from the entire article. Lynch is a walking TED Talk. It really could have uh, come from the Deadspin article. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great. It was great. 
But I think the most harrowing part of the article for me was where the Tyler Dunn speaks to Solomon Thomas and Solomon Thomas talks about his deep depression after his sister committed suicide and basically talks openly about how he was in a super dark place and he even had thoughts of suicide and he was in a super dark place. And apparently it was John Lynch that approached him and spoke to him and really helped get him out of that, that deep dark place. So really interesting insight uh, that Tyler Dunn brought in the article. Definitely a great read. Would recommend that you go check it out. All right, but let's get into it. Let's get into the scheme month stuff we're going to talk about this week because this week we turn our attention to Joe Woods passing game coordinator and the, the scheme month episode is really going to be about Joe Woods coverages and what we hope to maybe see uh, of in terms of changes to the 49ers coverage schemes that Joe Woods may bring a little bit like the change to the alignment that we saw with Chris Kasurik and exploring the wide nine. This is really going to be an exploration of Joe Woods, what changes to the 49ers coverage we might see and, and what the origins of those coverage changes are. And the fun part is that this stuff matters a whole lot more than the defensive end alignment. It is not just an alignment. It's actually potentially changes just throw to that out the way the Niners play defense. But of course, like any good superhero, this starts with an origin story. 1998, we take the time machine back there. David, what were you doing in 1998? Man, I was uh, 11 years old. Hot damn. So uh, wasn't doing a whole lot. Probably playing some Madden. Um, was that the nano blitzing era? No, I think we're pre nano blitz here. Like ninety eight, yeah, nano blitz. At least for me, we didn't really get, start getting into it until like two thousand four. You know, two thousand four, oh, yeah. two thousand five. Right. That was like my peak Madden era. Um, so yeah, ninety eight. I mean, I, I don't even think I, I wasn't even middle school yet. Yeah, that's uh, doing nothing of note. That's alarming. That's alarming because <laughs> I I was much older than you. Uh, I was definitely not. I was I was not in middle school because I was in high school. Man, I know. It's cool. I got more gray in my beard than you do. It's all right, though. Uh, I, I present younger than I am. Uh, so, but at this point in 1998, uh, you've got Joe Woods at Hofstra. And he is at Hofstra University with Johnny Lynn, who is, of course, the D, he was the DB coach for the 49ers in 1996. And then again, from 26 to 2010, he makes the jump to the NFL in 2004 with the Buccaneers. He's a defensive quality control coach with Mike Tomlin. And Mike Tomlin's someone that Joe Woods considers a mentor. Mike Tomlin was the defensive backs coach with the Buccaneers at that time. And this is where you really see Joe Woods getting into a group of defensive guys that are going to move their way around the NFL. In that 2004-2005 year, you have Monty Kippen, who's a defensive coordinator. Now, Kippen, of course, is the foundational coach for a lot of what the, the effectively what became the Seattle Cover 3. Because even though Monty Kippen was mostly a Cover 2 guy, Pete Carroll learned his defense from Monty Kiffin way back in the 70s. In 1977, Pete Carroll was a graduate assistant with the University of Arkansas, uh, back when Lou Holtz, I'm sure, was coherent. Uh, and, and Monty Kiffin uh, was there. So Carroll learned the 4-3 under defense that Kiffin deployed at Nebraska. And, and he basically just said, like, yeah, but I prefer a single high safety. Uh, and took a lot of what Kiffin taught and added his own wrinkles to it. And... Carroll said it was mostly because of the corner play. Monty Kiffin apparently wasn't a big corner guy. And so when Carroll was at USC, he wanted to be a corner you or a linebacker you because he wanted the corners to play aggressively. And so when you look at a lot of the fronts that Carroll uses, and now of course that Sala uses, a lot of that came from Kiffin. And when you look at now the passing game coordinator in Joe Woods, he spent some time with Monty Kiffin in 04 and 05. 
And you've got Mike Tomlin, who eventually became a branch off the Kiffin tree. And that's someone that Joe Woods considers a mentor. And then eventually he goes to Minnesota in 06 and Tomlin's his defensive coordinator. So that's the kind of the group that's moved around the NFL. Uh, and that's where he spent the most, the most time is what was with the Vikings. 06 to 2013. First with Tomlin, then with Leslie Frazier. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good coaches in there. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Kiffin is is a like all time great defensive coach, um, and, and had influence on a lot of people. But yeah, guys like Tomlin and then Leslie Frazier, um, who may not have been as good of a head coach, but you know, I think is is definitely a respected defensive coach. Um, and so yeah, as kind of as he came up in the NFL and uh, got more and more experience, did get a chance to spend a lot of time around quality coaches. And of course, like the the last kind of uh, defensive coordinator that he spent time under before he, he became a coordinator himself was uh, Wade Phillips in Denver. So um, that was who he took over for when Phillips left to go to Los Angeles with McVay. And that's what we have basically now is is two years of Joe Woods as a defensive coordinator. And that's kind of the main time frame that we can look at to say like, okay, what did he really take from all of this experience under all of these other coaches and, and what did he actually end up using and going to when it was his turn to call the shots? Yeah. It's important to note. I think that he has been around lots of really good defensive coaches and he's been in cover two, in primary cover two schemes. He's been with that four, three under with Kiffin. And of course he was with Wade Phillips, who is much more of a man coverage guy. He's been around of a lot. He's been around a lot of really good coaches, a lot of really good defensive backfields. And, and so now he's got a chance in Denver to do this on his own. So what the hell does he choose? What is Joe Wood's scheme? And what did he choose to call when he was in Denver? I think as we take a look at what he did in Denver, we can then take a look at what he might bring to the 49ers to add a little spice and a little flavor. But before we get into Joe Wood's scheme, let's take a brief break and hear from our sponsors. We're looking at Joe Wood's scheme his two-year tenure with the Broncos. He gets to call the shots. He's got to learn from a lot of really good defensive coaches. David, what the hell does he do in Denver? So I think you start, you know, just kind of from a more 30,000-foot view of things and just kind of, like, see, okay, what what basic coverages did he like to use? How does that compare to what San Francisco's been doing under Sala? And so I think the, the first thing to point out, really, is that his scheme in Denver was still primarily a single high team. Right. Um, most, I would say like most teams in the NFL do run the majority of their plays out of single high looks, but obviously there are some teams that do it more than others. So the 49ers and then basically any of the other teams that run that same kind of Seattle style cover three as their base coverage. So talking about Seattle, Atlanta, Jacksonville, um, Dallas, like all of those type of teams that, that run that same type of scheme they are way high in single high, right? Like talking three quarters of their snaps or more. So Woods wasn't quite to that level, but still ran single high on about just over 60% of his snaps. So 62% of their pass snaps, they were in some sort of single high coverage. So obviously um, still ending up in similar coverages, even if the, the techniques may be a little bit different, similar overall coverages to what the 49ers have been doing. I think the the main difference that you see within that single high stuff is the rate in which they use man coverage. So the 49ers have used man coverage pretty low on a, on a league-wide basis, so only about uh, 28% overall, most all of that being cover one stuff. That's, uh, one of, that's one of my favorite stats from this research, is that yeah. when you look at the 49ers playing 
cover one over the previous two years, they played cover one at about a 27% clip. When you increase that to all man coverages, when you look at things like two man, it goes up to 28%. One whole percent. <laughs> um, which just to compare, like, so the, in terms of that, like variety and mixing in cover zero, two man stuff, um, the, the Broncos under woods had cover one at 35%. So already an uptick over not only what the 49ers did in cover one, but just in general, um, when you include all kind of forms of man covered, that goes up to 45%. So, um, basically nearly half of their snaps are in some form of man coverage. Um, so that's a significantly higher rate than what we've seen from the 49ers. And, and from, for league wide context, there very, very few teams run man coverage over 50% of the time. Um, I, I want to say last season don't have it in front of me at the moment, but I think there was only like one or two teams. It's, it's usually like new England and then maybe somebody else, sneaks over there as well and and gets around that 50% mark. So 45% being a pretty high number for most NFL teams. So one of the things that was really interesting when we're watching Joe Woods tape is how you can differentiate between zone coverage and man coverage. Because as you're watching the game on Sunday, I thought it would be fun to just explore how it is that you can identify even pre-snap what man coverage, if man coverage is likely to be what the defense is called. So David, what are the three things that you can as a fan watch and point out and say, you know what, this is probably going to be a man coverage snap. Yeah. So I think um, this is the stuff that tends to be easiest. I, I actually kind of think back to that conversation that we had with Zach Robinson and talking about quarterback stuff. And one of the questions that we asked him was, okay, what is a quarterback looking at from the time that he makes that play call and everybody breaks the huddle and the time that he actually snaps the ball and is looking to throw, right? And what are the things that he's keen on? And a lot of that is trying to determine what coverage the defense is in, right? Is kind of the the primary thing. He wants to have a good idea of what coverage that defense is in before he takes the snap. And the things that you key on there are things that anybody should be keen on, right? If you're trying to figure out what that defense is doing. And so I think from a very basic level, the the easiest things to point out are going to be alignment, where, and I think to me, this is the most important one. Where are the defenders looking? Where are their eyes at after the snap? We'll tell you a lot in general, but especially here. And then also use the little tricks that offenses do to figure out coverages as well to your advantage, right? You can use those same things. So when guys go in motion, when you get shifts, how is the defense reacting in those situations? So all of that is is stuff that you can look for. I mean, man coverage, you're typically going to be getting uh, with your outside guys, you're talking inside alignment. You know, a lot of times you're up closer to the line of scrimmage. Um, and then eyes are the big part, right? Where eyes need to be on the receiver. If you're in man coverage and you're looking back in the backfield or you're you're kind of looking at more the the two or three receivers as a whole that you've got to your side of the field, you're not in man coverage then. Like you just, you can't be in single coverage on a guy and not be at, like know where he's at, right? And be following him. So where they're looking after the snap is going to be the big thing. And then how guys like line up to different formations and, and react to motion is the other thing. Like if you have, if you think about what stuff that like Shanahan does to help his offense formationally, and it's stuff like we're going to line our uh, running backs out wide and then we're going to get our receivers on the inside, right? If you see something like that, like if you have Dante Pettis in the slot, and Kyle Juszczyk out wide of him and the corners staying out there with with the fullback and you've got a linebacker near your your wide receiver in there they're not playing man coverage nobody is by design 
going to have their linebacker cover a receiver and then leave their corner just covering a fullback, right? It's just not going to work that way. So you can use those type of things um, with how the defense is reacting to formations and motion or, or guys following them across the formation. Um, you know, none of this is is hard and fast rules, but when you put everything together, like that's what gives you a good picture of what they're trying to do defensively. Especially when you're looking at linebackers, I think watching and bunch formations, because we watched a Rams game where you see the linebackers and they're literally looking back and forth. Like they're looking from receiver to corner, receiver to corner. And it's that head swivel, that stripe on the helmet that tells you like, okay, they're not just locked up on their man. They're actually trying to either watch the pattern or figure out what this quarterback is going to do. Um, and so sometimes they make it relatively obvious. And it's, it's fairly easy to see, even on match schemes, when someone is like switching back and forth between the two. Because when you get to the, the different flavors of coverages that you're going to get from Joe Woods, this is where you see some departures from what you might have with Robert Sala, right? One is just the uptick in man coverage. But two is the different ways that he's going to call cover three, because not all cover three defenses are created equal. There's a couple of different things that Sala will do to his cover three where he'll just make adjustments to it based on defensive formations, right? One of the most common ones here is Mabel, where you're looking at a three-by-one formation, so you've got three receivers to one side and a single receiver to the other side. And that's going to wreck cover three just because of the way they've got their players distributed all over the field. So what defenses do in this situation, and specifically Robert Sala, what he'll do in this situation, is he will adjust with a Mabel call and on that one receiver side, the corner is just going to man up. He's going to man up everywhere. Um, or if you're Saban, it's called Meg, right? Man everywhere he goes. And, and that's going to be an adjustment. There's a different thing that sometimes defenses will do, and this is going to be common across the league. It's something that you know Saban really pioneered in the 90s with Belichick, and that's pattern match, where you are going to... It, it's, a, it's a zone coverage, but you are going to match the patterns with a couple rules that you can build in but that get you closer to a receiver once they declare their patterns. And so what that does is it allows your zone coverage to feel a bit more like man coverage because you get a defender stickier to a wide receiver once they've declared their route. Right, and that's, and that's really the, the key point, I think, with, with all of this stuff is um, getting tight to routes. I always think it's very you know, insightful when you listen to guys like Saban describe kind of why they do what they do. And, and one of the problems that we've had with what Robert Sala has done and kind of the way that they've been running cover three a lot of the times is they use a more traditional, what's called just like spot drop zone, right? Where you're underneath defenders essentially. Um, so you've got in, in your basic cover three, you've got four underneath defenders. You got a curl flat guy to each side, and then you've got two hook players in the middle. Those guys have landmarks that they need to get to, right? So certain depth on the field, um, a certain target, whether that's going to be, you know, a certain distance between the hash and the numbers or, you know, whatever, whatever that technique may be that they're going to use there. They've got a certain point on the field that they're looking to get to. And their job is basically to get to that point as quickly as they can. It's honestly one of my like, like quiet joys in football is when you see a linebacker disguise a blitz and then he realizes that he's got to get to his landmark and he books it immediately as the snap goes, and he's like, "Oh shit, gotta go! Gotta turn and run, man! Gotta oh, get man. to that spot." That's and one of so my favorite things. You get to that, and and then at that point, it is get square, get eyes on the quarterback, and then you kind of just try to read where he's going, and you you get a feel for, okay, am I going to get in throwing lanes? Right, you should have an idea of where guys are coming at from their routes, and you try to just read the quarterback and make a break on a ball. 
the problem is, is as quarterbacks get better and better, uh, it, it just doesn't work. Like as, as Saban kind of said, uh, as he's talking about this, you know, this was talking about like when he was with uh, the Browns. And so obviously guys like Dan Marino had some of the strongest arms in there. And he's like, yeah, that whole, you know, drop and break on the ball shit doesn't work when Marino's throwing it, right? Our guys can't get there fast enough. And you think about guys in the NFL right now, like Patrick Mahomes and in, in his arm, right? Like it doesn't matter how close your guy is. If he's got space to cover, like Mahomes is going to get it there before your guy can react and get there. Right. And, and so you need to have ways to get your defenders closer to where receivers are so that they can make throws more difficult, close those windows up a little bit, have a chance to even challenge the receiver and, you know, get their hands on passes. Right. This is all what you want to do as a pass defense. And so doing things like playing more pattern match stuff, playing more man coverage is a way to go about making that happen. And frankly, Joe Woods did that when he was the defensive coordinator with the Denver Broncos. When you look at the way that he ran cover three, his underneath defenders were much stickier to those routes. They were very, they were matching. Sometimes they didn't match and it got him in trouble a couple of times, uh, especially in the game against the, the Chiefs. There's there's a story, actually, because in the Chiefs, they switched to cover three when they were in, like, you know, second and third and long. And apparently, the Chiefs converted on, like, a third and 20. Uh, and it really, really pissed off uh, the corners. And it was like they were because the Chiefs came back to win that game. Yeah. Um, I mean, Mahomes, man. I know. Absolutely. But there are still times where Joe Woods will, stop, will spot drop. But he spot drops typically in those third and long situations where you want to keep things in front of you. Yeah, just playing and, super soft. Yeah, and, and rally to the ball. But in most regular down and distance calls he's going to have some kind of pattern match and his players as a result are going to stick much closer to those underneath defenders and it puts them in a better position to actually make a play on the ball. And if there's one thing the Niners secondary needs this year, it's being close to the ball so they can make a play on it because as their interception numbers last year tell the story that they have all two of them, uh, they, they need to have players near the football and they need to make more plays because their turnover numbers were woefully abysmal last year. Right. I mean, so when we look at like how this could uh, affect the 49ers, right. And what we would, um, you know, expect slash hope changes that we get here. I, I think that's really the, the, the big thing, right? So when you look at that point of, okay, what, what do you want to do just generally as a pass defense, right? What is your goal as a pass defense? And, um, the thing that you should be kind of striving for, that's going to make you most successful is to force throws into tight coverage. It's the best thing you can do as a pass defense, right, as, as, a, as a pass coverage unit. And so you look at the difference. Um, you know, this is obviously some the, the separation that uh, receivers have on each throw is something that we track at PFF. And you look last year, you look at the EPA per play that was allowed when throwing into tight coverage versus throwing into literally any other type of coverage. And it's the difference is staggering. So you're looking at basically like, a negative third of a point expected that gets added when you throw into tight coverage. So basically meaning that's helping your defense to the point where you're now expected to score next as opposed to the offense who has the ball, right? And then when you look at any other type of coverage, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. It's about a positive third point expected. That difference is much, much wider than the difference between the best passing offense and the worst passing offense in the league last year. The Chiefs and the Cardinals, in case you were yeah. wondering. Like, it is a very wide gap. And so if you start looking at that kind of that data, right? Okay, this is a thing that we can see that makes defenses very successful. How do we go about making that happen, right? Okay, this is a good thing. We want to force throws into tight windows. What are the two ways that we can do that? 
And I think it comes down to man coverage. Obviously, you have a defender assigned to every receiver who's responsible to follow that guy wherever he goes. Should hopefully be in decent proximity to that receiver when the ball's thrown. And then from a zone perspective, you look at more pattern match stuff. You're you're asking your defenders now to focus more on identifying receivers and getting tighter to those routes as opposed to just covering a specific area on the field. So I think it's such an important point to reiterate that, and it sounds so basic, and oftentimes football is, that you want as a defense to force a quarterback to throw in a tight coverage. And when you do, you effectively turn a Patrick Mahomes-led offense into the Josh Rosen-led offense. That's a pretty significant delta. (laughs) That's a really, really significant delta. And that's what you can achieve by forcing throws into tight coverage. Now, there are, of course, pattern match and, and, and man coverages that can help you do that. Man coverage even alone, even if you don't go down the pattern match route, even if you just make the adjustment to go with more man coverage, man coverage alone may be more successful. When you look at the league average for EPA allowed man coverage, it's 0.04. It's slightly worse than the EPA allowed in zone coverage. And so basically, when, when you think about what that means for an offense, it means they are less explosive. But when you look at the percentage of plays that have a positive EPA or a positive outcome, that also is slightly better when you're in man coverage. So when you're in man coverage, you're forcing offenses to be a little bit less explosive and a little bit less efficient. And even though those deltas aren't huge, it's enough to say that, you know, maybe on the whole, man coverage, if that's the only change that you make, might be something that has a net value to your defense. Right. And, and so I think then the, the kind of final point to really make sure to bring up here and something that we've we've referenced a lot when talking about defenses with any of this stuff you need to have the players right uh man coverage sounds great but the reason everybody doesn't run it is because not everybody has enough corners and and they don't have the personnel to be comfortable like it's it's one thing to like okay we're gonna play man and guys are tight but if i've got uh, you know, Akella Witherspoon last year going up against Julio Jones, well, that matchup's probably not going to work out well for me, right? So you need to have the defenders that can actually stay tight to these guys. That was why when you look at, you know, why Denver was so successful for uh, all of those years, you know, mostly under Phillips and then kind of early on on Joe Woods when they had kind of the same group of defenders there. And it was because their corners were so good that they could play all that man coverage and actually stay tight to these receivers, right? So that's like the the key piece with all of it is is on a from a defensive perspective, scheme only gets you so far. Kind of like we talked about with uh, the wide nine, kicking your defensive out uh, end out an extra couple feet doesn't make Cassius Marsh a good pass rusher, right? But what um, if I put Cassius Marsh in man coverage? <laughs> play, play, yeah. <laughs> wow, uh, that's a terrible thought. But any same... worse than Earl Mitchell in man coverage? <laughs> man. No, no, actually, much better to have Earl Mitchell on man coverage. Dude will track those donuts. Track um, yo tight ends. But yeah, same same idea applies, right? You're you're not going to just suddenly run more man coverage and make a, a shitty cornerback bad or good all of a sudden. So uh, I, I think no matter what you do, like it's important to have those guys there, and and it's also important to remember that if they don't have those guys, there's not a whole lot that they can do to mask that, right? You're going to have problems. We saw what they, how that went when they had a super zone heavy scheme last year. And, and just the number of receivers that you saw consistently running wide open through their secondary. Um, and so it's just like no amount of scheme can make up for poor talent. So you're just hoping that that element of it can hold its own. 
Now, one of the well, we talked about Monty Kiffin at the top of the show when we we're talking about the the lineage of Joe Woods, the origin story, and of course, he is a too high safety coach, and that's what he preaches. Now, the Niners don't run a ton of split safety looks. If you look at their last couple of years, they've run cover two about 8% of the time over the last two years, uh, and they don't run a whole hell of a lot of quarters. So when you think about Joe Woods and you think, okay, if Joe Woods' defenses are a bit more pattern match, if they're a bit more man coverage, and that's what you're hoping that he brings to the 49ers, could that also result in more split safety looks, especially considering that the news over the last couple of months has been that the 49ers are wanting to make their safeties interchangeable. So that's the most interesting part. Uh, before that news came out, I would have said probably not, right? I, I wouldn't have expected like, okay, yeah, Woods is going to come in here. Maybe he can make some small tweaks. You know, they're going to maybe change some things technique wise that they do within the same scheme, but we're not talking like wholesale changes, right? To what they're doing defensively. Um, with the interchangeable safeties thing, that's something that you do see more often from two high teams because when you're playing more two high coverages, the safeties are doing more similar things, right? You're, you're no longer having this one deep free safety that needs to be athletic and rangy and have good ball skills and, you know, good instincts and all that stuff to be able to cover all that ground that he does. And then having a guy that's like a small linebacker playing down in the box all the time, right? It's two different skill sets. When you're playing single high all the time, you want more similar players and two high stuff because now those guys are, they really have the same type of role. So I think there's two ways you can look at it. One is if they wanted to have similar players at safety and still run single high stuff, it could be just a simple difference in how they uh, maybe change to formations and motion and stuff like that. Whereas opposed to having one guy that's deep all the time and then your uh, strong safety type, you know, goes to whatever side of the field based on the formation, they can just say like, oh, okay, we're going to rotate this guy down when they motion across and change the strength and send the other guy back. Right. And just be comfortable with either of them back there or either of them in the box. Like that's one way you could do it. Um, but the other way is, is running more too high stuff. And I think, um, personally, that's, I, I think the NFL is going to continue to go more too high. I think that's what you see at the college level as offenses get more and more college esque, you're going to see them start to answer those issues the same way the college defenses have, I think. So I think that's something that, uh, is good. It's a more pass focused type coverage shell. So, all of those, I think, would be positive things if they make any of those adjustments. Yeah, there's a reason that match quarters is one of the more popular defenses in college, and that's because it helps answer a lot of the problems that these types of de- uh, these types of offenses present to you. And I think as you see NFL offenses move more towards that mold with Patrick Mahomes and those types of players, um, and as offensive coaches realize, hey, these players are coming from spread offenses, what's a great way to ease them into the NFL but run similar concepts as they ran in college? I think you'll see the reaction of the defensive coaches that do and react to solve the problems in similar ways. Now, I think one of the interesting things about what Joe Woods could bring to the 49ers is this is complexity because you think of what Wade Phillips has as an older defensive coach. And this seems to be something that lots of old defensive coaches have. You think of the Vic Fangio's and the Wade Phillips of the world. They've got a really thick, deep playbook. They have answers for everything. And when you look, and when we looked at a couple of the games that Joe Woods played last year, he did seem to have more variation in how he played different teams. He played a lot of quarters versus the condensed sets that the Rams presented them. And then you see a different game against Seattle, and they're playing a lot of cover three. 
they're not just sticking to we're always playing cover three or we're always playing sp split safeties. They bring a bit more variation to the types of calls that they have. And yet we look at the Niners and the Niners are always super high cover three. And I mean, we just talked about how they were 8% cover two. Do you think that maybe Joe Woods as the passing game, you know, defensive coordinator, so to speak, is going to have more of an influence in the variability of coverages? Or do you think the net result will be that it's just small tweaks to what the Niners already do? So just kind of, you know, I, again, I, I think I would still lean towards this being still mostly a solid defense, right? I, I think it makes sense to me to bring in a guy like this and, and call him your passing game coordinator, right? To like have significant influence in that type of stuff. And, and that's what I think would be the hope is they can run some different things um, that, that they haven't done before. And, and so that's like the hope, but the expectation, I think for me, at least until I see otherwise is that this is still going to be a solid defense, a single high heavy team that leans a lot on cover three and is kind of a more, we're going to do what we do as opposed to adjust every single week, you know, and, and have kind of more specific game plan defenses, that's what I would expect them to do. I think we will see tweaks, right? I think the the most likely thing that we get from Joe Woods and, and differences from what they've done the last couple of years are those smaller technique things, right? It, maybe it's playing a little bit more man coverage, but maybe it's just how we play our cover three becomes a little bit different, right? Maybe we do start implementing match stuff a little bit more heavily, or we're changing the the technique that the corners play with, right, in, in those coverage. So there's those little kind of more nuanced things, I think is the most likely area that he has an impact. But I, I mean, again, definitely open to, I mean, you see, uh, you go back and watch that Rams game from, from last year, Rams uh, Broncos, and see what they did uh, from a coverage standpoint against the Rams. And it, and it was stuff that worked really well, right, for what the Rams like to do. And they like to get in those condensed sets and get everybody tight to the formation and uh, just destroy the middle of the field with, you know, the, the play action stuff that they like to do off the, the outside zone looks. And so that's really hard for your underneath defenders in cover three. If you can get another defender that's back there as a safety that's already there, that's kind of more of a pass-first player, you have some more options there to be able to cover some of those routes. And so I think, yeah, some of the things that they did there was interesting. It would be nice to to see that with the 49ers. I just don't hold my breath. You know, I started this thinking that the net result of this would be that, you know, well, Joe was probably runs a bit more man coverage and that's all I hope we get. I left watching the the tape and, and doing some of the study and thinking, you know what, I actually hope that he changes the way that we or adds to the way that we run cover three. Because when you see, when I would see the way that Joe Woods's cover three calls looked as compared to the way that Robert Sala's cover three calls looked, they looked like completely different defenses, even though they're both cover three. And it had so much to do with the way that Joe Woods would match his defenders to routes underneath that there was always a player there ready to contest the ball. And there's a reason that uh, the games that we watch were the Seahawks and, and the Rams, and that's because the Seahawks, of course, in division, a team that even though Russell Wilson apparently is not a great quarterback, according to some personnel people <laughs> in the NFL, uh, you know, he, he was still limited in what he was able to do because the, you know, and it makes sense, right? You bring an extra defender down into the box. That's why you run a bit more cover three. But what they were able to do, even with the style of cover three that they made, it made them stickier with their underneath players and it made their cover three overall more effective. And I think you're probably right. I think ultimately this is still a Robert Sala's defense. 
he is of the philosophy that this is the defense to run. And so I don't think you're going to see a huge uptick in split safeties or quarters or maybe even man coverage. I hope what you see is more refinement to cover three now in year three of a system with defenders who in some cases have been there for several years. Hopefully that's the change that happens because you want players close to receivers. Yeah, you you just like flat out need more complexity within your your coverage, right? Like that's really what it comes down to. You need to have more like NFL offenses right now have just figured out so many ways to destroy this vanilla cover three. Like if you're just going to sit back and do these spot drop zones, it's over. You have you have no chance against some of these offenses, right? Yeah, you might be fine against some of the weaker offenses in the league, and, and that might get you by, but when you go up against better offenses, they are just going to dice that shit up. And so you have to have answers. You have to have adjustments that you can make and different things that you can get to in your calls defensively to be able to combat that stuff. One of the more interesting kind of, I guess, debates or or spectrum lines that you can fall on one side or the other of is whether or not defenses are better if they're simple or they're complex. Fritz Shermer wrote a book where he talked basically like hammered into us that you want to run it as simple as humanly possible because you want your defenders to play fast. You want them to excel at the things that they are. And that is probably a very, very good athlete. You don't want to bog them down with thinking. This is the premise with Shanahan and McVay offenses, right? You keep them thinking because when they're thinking, they're slow. And if they're reacting, they're fast. And oftentimes the premise has been from the defensive side of the football that you want to lean towards more simple defenses because that's what allows your players to play fast. Would you now say that you lean more towards the, you know, having a bit more complexity in your defense? And even if it means growing pains early on, you think it may it might give you gains overall when you're looking at the complexities of modern NFL offenses. So generally, probably yes. I, I think what it comes down to, though, and 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 the very like key point of this is it, it comes down to what you can teach, right? If Robert Sala can't teach complex stuff, and and he's uh, needs to teach us simpler defenses, and that's what he can really get across to his players best to get them to understand and fully be on board with it, then that's probably what he should be running, right? Because if you try to be complex and you're not good enough at teaching that complexity, like you're just asking for problems, right? You're just asking for, for busts and all sorts of things going wrong um, within your defense, I think ideally, like to me, the most ideal situation that you're at defensively is your secondary is awesome. And you can just line up and play man coverage all the damn time. Right. Because you have guys that are so good that we can just match them up with their, with their guys. And our guys are, we're going to trust that our guys win the majority of those matchups. Right. Yeah. But the likelihood of that happening is so infinite. It's not infinitesimally low. Obviously it happens sometimes, but the likelihood of that happening is low that you, you should have a system to account for that. Exactly. So, you know, barring that, barring being able to acquire that much talent in in your secondary and keep all those guys healthy. um, I do think you need to have a little bit more complexity there and it doesn't need to be anything crazy, but I think if you look at, guys who are consistently have good defenses, you know, two of the best defensive coaches that we've like maybe ever had and guys like Belichick and Saban, they're among the most complex coaches, right? They, if Saban can come in and teach his defense to guys fresh out of high school, then I, I, you don't have any excuses in the NFL, right? Like it's their primary, it's their only job. And, and you should be able to get it across to those guys. But I think that's the caveat, right? You Saban can do it. 
because he's an excellent teacher and he knows that system incredibly well and he can get it across to his guys in a way that they understand and it makes it feel simpler for them. But it still gives them defensively all of the answers that they could want, right? And the ability to make things difficult for quarterbacks that they're playing. Um, so I think that's the the thing that you want and it's just not, unfortunately, like that's why some coaches are better than others, right? Is, is not everybody can do that. Yeah, and I think for me, it's it's a little bit of seasoning on top of that, which I think comes with time. Because I think you look at the Vic Fangio's and the Wade Phillips and the Bill Belichick's and the Sabans of the world, and they're all a little bit older. I think a little bit of it has to do with the, how they are steeped in a particular system and can thus teach those systems in that, that may end up being very complex, but because they have so much experience with it, they know how to teach it effectively. They know how to convey those complex concepts very simply. And, and this is why I think that those, some of the best defensive coordinators are older people. Because I just think that you, you have to have some system that you are versed in, believe in, and have answers for. And, and I think that's part of the, the extra sauce that comes with complexity is having the experience to have taught it and or experienced it and or gone through it and not rely on just the simplicity of saying, you're a good player, go beat your dude. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing. And it just really gets back to the point of like, you can make probably either one work, right? There's not one that I think is inherently better. If you have good players, you're going to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so overall, I think when you look at the the 30,000 foot view of what Joe Woods does, he is definitely going to run a bit more man coverage, something we hope that he brings to the 49ers because man coverage can be a bit more effective. It reduces the efficiency and effectiveness of offenses. When you look at even if they were to adopt more of his own principles with some pattern match schemes and have him change the way the Niners run their cover three, that's going to be a net positive as well. Um, I think the only... You know, negative that you're thinking about with Joe Woods is maybe like Aqib Talib doesn't like him. <laughs> um, but Aqib Talib, I mean, that seems like probably a pretty large group of people. He snatches lots of people's chains. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the, the it, we would be remiss if we did not mention that Aqib Talib thinks that Joe Woods uh, shouldn't have got rid of all the good players in Denver. I mean, did he? Like, is that his fault? No, it sure isn't. Oh, John Elway yeah. on on our next podcast. John Elway sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay man he played quarterback he knows the position he it's knows fine. everything Flacco renaissance that's oh god I, I forget that Joe Flacco exists sometimes hell yeah it is a psychological block that my mind there. created sometime around 2012 uh, all right. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Next week, we continue ski month, and we promise it's actually next week because I had to. Uh, it was my fault that we had to put a break in last week's show because I had to take a work trip unexpectedly. Usually, it's my fault. Yes. So, yeah. But instead, it was my fault. Uh, but I promise you, next week, we will indeed have an episode. And next week, rather than looking at a schematic change that maybe a position coach will bring to the 49ers. Uh, this is actually going to be something that's just existing in football world that we find kind of interesting. We're going to spend some time talking about the tight front. T-I-T-E. Uh, tight. Because, you know. Football coaches like to remove characters. Uh, they're like startups. You know? <laughs> they're just removing vowels <laughs> at random. Yep, just yeah. Just get that letter. Uh, now that one fucking sucks. Get that letter out of there. Yeah. So we're talking about the future of football. And when we talk about some of the schemes that colleges run that help prevent against the spread looks. This is all the rage in high school and college football, the tight front. So we're going to spend a little time talking about it uh, and maybe how we might see it in the NFL soon uh, if we haven't already because I think we might have. Uh, so thanks again for tuning in. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? Me at PFF underscore David. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. And as always, go Niners. <laughs>